I love that hymn, Come Ye Sinners. It was written by a man named Joseph Hart. Joseph Hart lived back in the 1700s. He actually, uh, first thing he ever wrote was a critique of John Wesley and attacking the Methodists for teaching something so crazy as you must be born again. And so he wrote this, this letter attacking John Wesley. Later, he gets converted. And for basically the first year of his Christian life, he basically journals in hymns. And at the end of that first year, he publishes Hart's hymns, Joseph Hart's hymns. Come Ye Sinners is in that, as well as every other hymn that we have by him. It's a pretty remarkable achievement, your first year as a Christian, to, to write uh, a whole book of hymns. But the way, you know, it has been sung in a lot of churches, not in RUF, you guys sang the right text, the full text, but it was popular in America, especially in the early 1800s, the time in our history in America that we called the Second Great Awakening, where the theology that God is sovereign and He saves people was discarded in favor of a more man-centered theology. That we can basically, if we follow the right laws of revivals, we can produce uh, revivals and get people to come forward at meetings and know that those people are saved because they prayed a prayer. And all the, a lot of this stuff that plagues evangelicalism comes out of this Second Great Awakening. And in the Second Great Awakening, the, that hymn was changed. The way J Joseph Hart wrote it, the first half of every verse talks about what we need. And then in the second half of the verse, it talks about how God gives us what we need. And there's a profound shift that happens in the middle of the, or the early part of the 1800s when that second half of each verse is eliminated. And instead, there's a chorus that gets attached to it that goes, I will rise and go to Jesus. Do you know, do you know this little chorus? Maybe you've heard it sung that way. They sing it that way in a lot of southern churches. Right? Joey, you probably heard it sung that way, right? Yeah. Um, and I remember when I um, first discovered that the way that we sing it in RUF, at least that text, is the, the real way. It was, it was profound. And it was really important. And it's a great picture of what we're trying to talk about and get into our hearts this weekend. John Bunyan, who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, great, one of the great works of English literature, had a little poem that I, that I want to quote for you that I think is really helpful. He said, Run and work, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A sweeter sound the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. We say that again. Run and work, the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. It just tells me what to do. A sweeter sound the gospel brings, it bids me fly and gives me wings. God gives what He commands in the gospel. Isn't that good to know? But it's hard to believe that and it's hard to remember that. So the way that this hymn, you hand me that, that hymn, where is it? Come ye sinners, it's in your pile here, right? Maybe it's in this one. Oh, somewhere. There it is. All right, look. So come ye sinners. Here it says, I love this one. Let not conscience make you linger. Uh, if, and this, this is the hymn inviting us to come to Jesus, to run to Jesus. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. Don't think that if you just wait, eventually you'll be fit and you can make yourself more acceptable to God. That's a fond dream. 
in, in negative connotation. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. And that's great, right? But then if you don't have the last, the last two lines and instead you say, well, great, all, all I need is to feel my need of him. I'll go to Jesus because I feel my need of him. Really? Do you really feel your need of him enough? See, so many people get caught in this vicious cycle of thinking that they need to sincerely invite Jesus into their heart and really, 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 really mean it. And then you wonder forever if you really, really, really meant it enough. But look at how the hymn goes. It says, all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. This he gives you. This he gives you. Repeats it for emphasis. Tis the Spirit's rising beam. How does He give it to you? The Spirit comes into you and changes your heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh and makes you alive. This is grace. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 says that grace is God making dead people alive. It's not God saying, you need a helping hand? Here, I'll, I'll give it to you. So many of our illustrations and our pictures of what the good news of the gospel is about are really not good pictures. And they're not good news. Like so many people think that what it means to, to, to tell people about the gospel is to say, well, look, you know, you're out in the, in the middle of that lake out there and you're drowning. You're going down for the third time. And the gospel is that Jesus comes out in a boat and he throws you a life preserver. But you still got to take it. Now, that's not the gospel. The gospel is, the good news is, you're already dead on the bottom of the ocean floor. And Jesus strips off his robes of glory, dives in, drags you up, drags you to the beach, breathes new life into you. That's the gospel. That's good news. And that's what God does for us. And that story is so important to get into your hearts because... It, it affects everything from that point on. If you think that the reason you're a Christian is because you decided to cut God a break, well, then it completely changes the way you relate to Him. In fact, in fact, we're dependent upon Him for everything, from the beginning to the end. And so, you know, as we're talking about this idea about idols, what you need to understand is idolatry is not just a problem for people before they come to Jesus. It's still an issue. Until Christ comes back again or He calls you home, you will struggle forever with misplaced love and misplaced trust. But God is not passive. He's coming after you because He loves you and He loves His glory. And one of the ways that he does that is through what we call in the Reformed tradition the means of grace. Now in some settings, in some Christian traditions, they talk a lot about spiritual disciplines. But in the Reformed tradition, we would prefer to talk about means of grace. Means mean um, the way that God gets grace into you. And the way God continues to keep Jesus and Him crucified before you so that you can continue to pursue Him and to love Him. We need regular sights of Christ and Him crucified. Because again, it's fear 
that drives you to your idols. And what God says in response to that is, remember and rejoice. If, you've, if, if the reason that you run after idols is because you're afraid, the reason you're afraid is because you've forgotten or resisted who God really is. And so we need to be reminded regularly of who Jesus is and what He's done. The, the way I would say it is we need regular faith sights, S-I-G-H-T-S, faith sights of Christ and Him crucified. Look at, um, if you have your Bible, look at a, there's a passage in Hebrews. We're going to look at a couple, couple different passages tonight as we talk about this. But we're going to start in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. Now, if you're looking on the outlines for where all this stuff is, it's not there. Uh, Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to talk about the means of grace, particularly how the Word, how how we're supposed to read the Bible in a way to help us be reminded about who God is and what He's done for us. And then we're going to talk about the sacraments. But we're not going to talk about a lot of the stuff that's on that outline about the sacraments, but we will talk about some of it. But we're going to start sort of off the page, so to speak, with Hebrews chapter 9. And it's a simple little verse here, but a profound verse. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, it says this, How much more then will the blood of Christ, he's contrasting it with the sacrifices of the Old Testament and the blood of bulls and goats. And he says here, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Now, there's two things that are important to understand about this verse. The first is, what does it mean for our conscience to be cleansed? It's actually a little different than what it means just to be clean in God's sight. Justification by faith is how God makes you clean in His sight. By sending Jesus to live and die in your place and accepting, God accepts the life and death of Christ in your place. The great hymn writer Horatius Bonar, we sang his hymn, Not What My Hands Have Done. He had a, a, a little phrase from a hymn. I don't, I don't love the whole hymn, but I love this line. Upon a death I did not die, upon a life I did not live, I stake my whole eternity. That's the heart of the gospel. Upon a death I did not die, upon a life I did not live, I stake my whole eternity. And that gives you not just forgiveness, but righteousness. Do you know the difference? Righteousness. See, forgiveness means you don't owe anybody anything anymore. Your debt's been forgiven. But, you know, what God says we really are supposed to do is to love Him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength from the moment we're born to the moment we die with no variation, no let up whatsoever. So it doesn't matter if God has forgiven you because of what Jesus suffered. He still requires that you love Him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And it wouldn't really be good news worthy of the name. Do you know gospel literally means good news? It wouldn't be good news if all God did was forgave you and gives you a fresh start. I remember uh, years ago I was working with some high school students and the pastor of the church I, I attend now was giving some talks and I was meeting in small group time and talking with some of these high school guys and, and it was so depressing because I, I went to the pastor and I said, God, they're not getting what you have to say at all. They think that the Christian life is about turning over a new leaf. And he came up with this great illustration. I love it. He said, do you, do you guys know what a compost pile is? 
Right? It's where you pile up all your leaves and so that, until they rot and rot. You put other things in there too sometimes. Um, all your garden clippings. All this, and it just gets rotten and then you can use it for fertilizer on your garden. Well, the Christian life is not just about turning over a new leaf. Because <laughs> you've got to understand that you're like a compost pile. <laughs> The only, the only leaves, when you stick that fork, pitchfork in there and turn it over, all you got to offer is rotten leaves. I don't care how many times you stick a pitchfork in that pile of rotten leaves and flip it over, you're not going to find any new leaves. You're going to find rotten leaves. We need so much more than a fresh start. And what we get in the gospel is the life of Jesus. Righteousness. Here's the way I think about righteousness. Righteousness is, is, the, the, is basically God's judgment of saying, you've done everything I required from the heart, and I find that beautiful. It's being seen as, as beautiful because you've done everything from the heart that God could ever want. And that's what Jesus did. And when you trust in Jesus, that's what you get. But what Hebrews is talking about here is a little different. Hebrews isn't talking just about you being actually cleansed by the blood of Christ. He's talking here about having your conscience cleansed. And what Hebrews is talking about is, do you know that you're cleansed? Not are you cleansed, as important as that is, but there are a lot of Christians who maybe really are Christians, but they really struggle to believe they're Christians, and they really struggle to believe that their conscience is cleansed. Christians tend to be really troubled by this, this idea of what about the sins I commit after I become a Christian? I mean, I can understand maybe God forgives me because I didn't know any better. Uh, but now that I've become a Christian, I don't understand how he can continue to forgive me because I really should know better. First of all, God doesn't forgive you because you didn't know any better. He forgives you because of Jesus. That's the only way you get forgiven. Second of all, second of all, if he forgives you because of Jesus, there's no sin you can commit now that's going to make him run away from you. Jesus took everything, everything that would make God want to run away from you screaming. And there's a lot of stuff about you that would want to make God run away screaming. But Jesus took it all, right? And you need to know that. You need to have your conscience cleansed from acts that lead to death. When do you do acts that lead to death? Every single day, every single minute. You sin, and I sin, and my conscience knows it. And while I know that I, in Christ I'm righteous and I stand forgiven in God's sight, I still need my conscience cleansed. And so what Hebrews is saying is, the blood of Christ cleanses our conscience. It cleanses our conscience. And why is that important? Well, look at the purpose clause at the end of that verse. The blood of Christ cleanses our conscience so that we may serve the living God. The only way to serve the living God is if your conscience is cleansed. If you're unsure about whether you're, you're clean before God, then you will never really be able to serve Him. Everything you do for Him is really to get Him to like you. Or to keep him liking you. It's not really serving him. It's actually serving you. There's an old story that I think gets at this really well. About a king who was sitting in his court on his throne. And a farmer, poor farmer came in. And gave to the king a cow. And the king said, wow, thank you. And granted him an estate of hundreds of acres. 
And one of the, one of the courtiers, one of the, the folks that attended there at court kind of thought to himself, man, that guy got a couple hundred acres for a cow. I wonder what I'll get for a fine stallion. So the next day, he brings a fine stallion before the king. And the king says, thanks. The guy's like, that's it? <laughs> yeah, thanks. And the guy presses the king. Yesterday, this farmer gives you a cow and you give him 200 acres. I give you a fine stallion and I get thanks. What gives? And the king says, the farmer gave me a gift. You gave yourself the stallion. Do you get the point? It wasn't really a gift for the king. It was payment to get something he wanted. And if you're not sure that God loves you because of what Jesus did, all the Christian stuff you do is not serving God. It gets tainted by trying to get God to like you. The only way to serve the living God is have your conscience cleansed. If that's true, then we need regular faith sights of Christ and Him crucified. And there's two, well, three, but I'm going to only talk about two tonight ways that God gives those to us. The one is prayer. And I just don't have time to talk about everything, so I'm going to leave that one to the side. But some theologians count it as, some of the, as one of the means of grace. Others don't. I'm not going to get into that whole debate. But prayer certainly is one of the ways that God reminds us of who Jesus is and what he's done. But in particular, the ones I'm going to talk about tonight are the Word of God and the sacraments. And help you understand a little bit about how they are used by God to give us faith sights of Christ and Him crucified. Let's look back a little bit in the book of Hebrews to chapter 4. And we'll look at chapter 4, start at verse 12, the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4, start at verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. The Word of God exposes us. Sometimes when we don't want it to. Sometimes when we go looking for it and asking for it. But one of the main purposes of the Word of God is to get into the deep places in your heart. But it does something else as, as the book of Hebrews goes on. Look at what it says next. Therefore... Since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You find all the way through the book of Hebrews an emphasis on assurance and confidence. God does not just want you to invite Him into your heart. He wants you to be sure that He loves you. Why? 
Because the assurance of His love is really the power to live the Christian life. Having that cleansed conscience and knowing that your conscience is cleansed even though you do acts that lead to death is absolutely crucial for serving the living, living God. And the book of Hebrews brings this up. We're going to look at another place in chapter 6 in a minute. The book of Hebrews regularly talks about the importance of confidence and boldness and how what Jesus has done gives us confidence and boldness and assurance. Because if you doubt God's love for you, it saps all of your energy. Now, look at this. It says, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. And, you know, maybe you're somebody that likes to memorize passages. Maybe you've even memorized that passage. But I want you to understand and to see that the Bible never gives bare commands. It never just tells us what to do. Why? Because faith doesn't feed on the commands. Run and work the law demands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A sweeter sound the gospel brings it bids me fly and gives me wings. And so, the writer of Hebrews doesn't just say, hold firm, hold on, just stick it out. You can do it, come on. No. It says we have a high priest who can sympathize with us in our weakness. And the Word of God doesn't just expose the ugliness of our heart to us and to God, but it exposes Jesus to us. It opens our eyes to see Jesus, the one who has been tempted in every way and yet did not fail. Therefore, you can be seen as righteous in God's sight, as one who was tempted but did not fail. Not because you did it, but because upon a death you did not die and upon a life you did not live. You stake your eternity. That's what it means to be a Christian. Now, there are two different ways to read the Bible. There's, there's reading the Bible the way most of us have been trained to read. And, and if you want to go farther, let me just recommend Eugene Peterson's recent book, Eat This Book, about the practice of reading the Bible in, in more of a meditative sort of way. I don't mean emptying your mind kind of Eastern idea of meditation. I mean meditation like the Puritans talked about it. Did I mention that last night? About how the, the Puritans have this wonderful allegory or metaphor they use for meditation. They talk about meditation on the Word of God as like chewing the cud, like a cow chewing her cud. Do you all know about cows, right? And they got those four stomachs, isn't it? Four stomachs, yeah. I'll, I'll forever, I'm forever haunted by an elementary school uh, field trip to a dairy farm where they had a cow where they had like cut out this living cow, the side of it, and it had like a plastic thing and you could see into its four stomachs. Yeah, it was crazy. I don't know why they showed little kids that. But they did. All right. So with the cows, you know, they, they can't really digest that stuff very good. So they spit it back up and they chew it more and more to get every last morsel, every last nutriment out of it. I know that's graphic, but I hope it'll stick with you, right? Because meditating on Scripture is not just reading it. It's chewing on it. Tim Keller has a great little definition of meditation. He said, it's thinking a truth in and then thinking it out. It's thinking a truth into your heart and then thinking out all the implications. It's like I said, using the faithfulness of God to do battle against your fear. 
and saying, the faithfulness of God is shown to me in Christ crucified, in Him hanging on that cross when He could have got down at any moment, when He could have called down legions of angels to blast all those people who were unrighteously putting Him to death. But He doesn't. And you can use that to battle against your fear and against your doubt of God's faithfulness because the cross proves that God's love is faithful. Okay? And that's what it means to think a truth in and then think it out. Jesus died on a cross. What are the implications of that for me trying to, to please people? A friend of mine, Steve Taylor, um, you know, people don't know his music anymore. It's too, it's too bad. Hopefully you'll get to see the Blue Light Jazz movie that he's, that he's working on. But um, he used to write these really wonderfully sarcastic uh, songs about the Christian subculture. And um, he's got one song called Jesus is, If Jesus is for Losers. Anybody know this song? Nobody knows this song. Uh, well, he's got this great line. He says, if Jesus is for losers, why do I still play to the crowd? Right? See, that's a great example of meditation. If Jesus is for losers, then why am I trying to be the most popular person I know? And, and, and that's, you know, we don't know how to do meditation. The way we've been trained to read is to read, to gather information so we can spit it back out on the test. Like I said, is it going to be on the test? That's the question behind everything we do. Is it going to be on the test? Will there be a test on this? Right? But it's very different to read a book to gain a relationship with the author. To, to, to discover her, his or her heart. And when we come to the Bible, we're to read it well, Eugene Peterson has this phrase. He said we're to read it with the, um, sort of as both a poet and a lover. With a lover's attentiveness to words, responsiveness. Now, with a lover's responsiveness to words and a poet's attentiveness to words. That when you read the Bible, you're to read it as somebody who loves you. When you're in love, you pay very close attention to what makes the one you love joy, gives them joy. You're always trying to figure out what is it that will bring this person joy. Do you read the Bible that way? No, I'm not saying not. Do you read the Bible just to, to say, yeah, God, okay, I read the Bible today. Hope that makes you happy. <laughs> you know, you say that I'm supposed to do it. I don't really know why, but I'm doing it. Listen, if you don't see Jesus and his love regularly when you read the Bible, you will quit reading the Bible. I have this conversation with students all the time. They'll come to me often about three or four weeks into their freshman year because almost everybody that comes to Belmont where I do RUF comes from a church background. And by the fourth, third or fourth week of their freshman year, they haven't been reading their Bible. They haven't been praying. They probably haven't even been going to church. And some of them, by that point, have gotten homesick. They've called their parents and their parents asked them if they read the Bible. And they feel bad and say, well, you need to go talk to that RUF minister we told you about. So they come, they sit down with me and we talk. And they'll say, well, you know, I'm not really reading my Bible like I used to. I used to have this youth group leader. He would call me up every week. And, I, you know, I just don't have that anymore. And I usually will say, well, you know, tell me, what do you think it means to be a Christian anyway? And they'll say, well, and they always kind of look down. I guess it means to, you know, to try and evangelize and try to read your Bible and try and love people. And I say, really? I know why you don't read your Bible. It's because you're so addicted to doing things that you didn't even hear the question I asked. Because I didn't ask you what do Christians do. I asked you what does it mean to be a Christian? And you don't think of being at all. To be a Christian means somebody that God set his love on before the foundation of the world. It means to be somebody who Jesus came and lived and died in their place. It means to be somebody who was adopted in Christ, justified, sanctified, 
glorified. You who were God's enemy have now been made His friend. You who are without a family have now been brought into the very family of God and made His adopted sons and daughters. That's what it means to be a Christian. And if when you read the Bible, that's what you saw, you'd want to read the Bible more. But if you read the Bible just to find out more stuff you're supposed to do that you're not doing anyway, well, you're not going to read the Bible very much. Especially when you don't have somebody calling you up every week trying to make you feel guilty that you don't read the Bible. It matters what you think about the Gospel. It matters that when you read the Bible, you see that all the things it tells you to do, Jesus has already done. Now, it doesn't mean that you aren't called to do them, because Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands. But it's a huge difference in why you would do those sorts of things. I find this often with my students. They grew up in legalistic churches, and all of their spiritual energy was devoted towards doing the right things and trying to sort of live the right way. I would say that they've been feeding on their own willpower and trying to derive life from it. And then they come into RUF and they learn about Reformed theology and often there's this euphoric sense of deliverance and freedom. But pretty soon, it begins to sour because where they were living on their willpower, now they begin to try to live on their right understanding. And what they never really get to is learning how to feed on Jesus by faith. And that's what we need when we read the Word. We need to be able to, to meditate on it. To let the Bible ask questions of us rather than us just asking questions. I'll give you the simplest way. I actually discovered this in college. I found a book by a guy, Robert Murray McShane, um, that, that year after I got out of college and I was hanging out at Berkeley and leading the Christian fellowship there. And he talked in there about this practice of praying the Scripture where he would basically just go through a passage of Scripture and he would sort of emotionally respond to it and dialogue with God in prayer about the Bible. So you would take a passage like this, for instance, and, and you would say, okay, God, you say here that the Word of God is living and active. Thank you for that, because I'm so often dead and cold. And I'm so glad that the spiritual sort of whole like relationship we have that there's something that's living and active because I really don't feel living and active very much of the time. Thank you that when I come to the Bible, I don't need to depend upon me and my insights to get anything out of it. It's living and active. But Lord, it kind of hurts too because it's living and active and it has a way of messing with me. Now you'd say this your own way, but do you see what I'm saying? You're, you're praying in response to God. You're thanking Him. You're forming things that you want to ask Him for. You're saying, that, I'm, that hurts, that's beautiful, that tastes sweet, and you're doing it all in prayer while you're reading the Bible. So that prayer isn't just you sort of closing your eyes and talking in your own head and trying to pretend that you're communicating with somebody. I heard J.I. Packer say once that as far as he is concerned, Christians didn't really pray silently in their own heads really before the 16th, 17th centuries that he can figure out. I don't know, the Puritans, you know, had what they called prayer closets, and it wasn't so that they could get away and not be distracted. It was because they screamed so loud they were disrupting everybody. Literally, like people would have to find a place where they could go pray where they wouldn't upset everybody, and you should try that. Try praying out loud. Why do you close your eyes when you pray? The Bible never says to do that. Why do we close our eyes when we worship? So that we can have an individualistic experience in the midst of a crowd and get lost in the crowd? 
corporate worship, maybe we should be reminded that we're actually a corporate body. I don't know. These are just crazy ideas that I have. But we need the Word of God, and we need to meditate on it. And we need to know how to pray. And this is just an idea, just to start. All right. How about the sacraments? Well, here's how I want to transition to this. The promises of the, of the Bible are the key. As a matter of fact, in, in Galatians 3, Paul goes to great lengths to argue that the whole Bible uh, basically preaches this message, that the gospel, the good news, is a promise agreement rather than a law agreement. Now, what does that mean? Well, I knew Jeremy back when he was a college student, all you Harvard folks. And if, if when, when I knew Jeremy, I said, you know, Jeremy, I've got a bunch of leaves in my backyard Will you come over? You know what? If you would come over to my house tomorrow afternoon and rake my leaves, I'll give you a million dollars. Now, that sounds like a pretty good deal. I mean, my yard really isn't that big. You'd probably do it in about an hour and a half. So that seems like an infinite overpayment for work. But here's the key. If he doesn't come over and do that work, he's not getting the money. It's a law agreement. The gospel is not that. The gospel is God saying, I'm going to give you a million dollars. And the only one who needs to be faithful for you to get the money is God. Do you understand that? The gospel is not a law agreement. It's a promise agreement. That means the only one who needs to be faithful for the blessings of the gospel to come into your life is God. Faith feeds on these promises. And the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are the gospel promises preached in a picture. Why? Because we're weak people with weak faith. And God is a kind, condescending God who knows that we need more than just words. We need pictures. And God's been doing this for a long time. The Bible is actually full of sacraments. Pictures of His goodness and His promise that come to people who find His promises hard to believe. Do you find the promises of God hard to believe? I think one of the reasons is because we're so disconnected from the sacraments. And we're just trying to trust words by themselves. But you know what? I'll give you again a great example. In Acts 2.38, on the day of Pentecost, when the, the, all the people that are there ask Peter, what must we do to be saved? You know this passage, right? He says, repent and be baptized. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. Why don't we think of baptism as a promise? Because we're so addicted to doing things. And there's plenty of American evangelicals. Now listen, you can be part of RUF and be welcome at RUF if you disagree with what I'm saying about the sacraments. I know that Christians disagree about this, but I also know the Bible says that baptism is a promise. And large sections of the Christian church thinks baptism is an outward sign of an inward change, which is basically a way of saying it's about something I did. That's not what Peter says. Peter says it's a promise. It's the gospel preached in a picture. The Lord's Supper is the gospel preached in a picture. The, the reformers were fond of calling them the, the blood and the, uh, the wine and the bread visible words. Now we live sort of after the Enlightenment when we sort of don't like mystery and those sorts of things. The reformers didn't. 
And they thought it was important that you not only have the word preached, but you have the word preached in a picture. And you really should have both of them together all the time. You shouldn't celebrate the Lord's Supper without the preaching of the Word. And you really shouldn't do the preaching of the Word in church without celebrating the Lord's Supper because they interpret each other. And we're people with weak faith. Abraham was a guy with weak faith. Now, you know, the, the Jews actually got real confused about Abraham. They seemed to think that his circumcision was the thing he did that made him righteous in God's sight. And it's not hard to understand why, because our heart is always wanting to claim that it did something that made me stick out from everybody else. But if you actually go back and you look at the story, circumcision is given after Abraham believes, and it's credited to him as righteousness. Paul goes to great lengths to argue this in Romans chapter 4. God makes a promise to Abraham, and yet he finds it difficult to believe. And so God tells him, takes him, looks at him and says, look at the stars, look at the sand, so shall your descendants be. He still finds it hard to believe. So God puts him into a deep sleep at one point. And, and you know, do you know this story? God basically tells Abraham, look, you and I are going to cut a covenant. We're going to make an agreement together. In his day and age, if you wanted to make an agreement in a serious way, you would cut animals apart in pieces. You would spread the parts of the animals apart. And then you and the person you were making an agreement with would grab hands and you would walk through the pieces of the animal. And what you were saying was, if either of us breaks our end of the deal, may we be torn apart like these animals. It was kind of the ancient Near Eastern version of, you know, cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. <laughs> Did you ever mean that? Well, they, I guess they kind of meant it in this ceremony. All right, but here's what happens. God says to Abraham, hey, we're going to make an agreement here. And then he gets Abraham to cut the animals apart. And Abraham knows what's coming next. What's coming next? We're, God and I are going to walk through these pieces and we're going to make a covenant together. But that's not what happens. God puts him into a deep sleep. And then he gives him a vision of God as a smoking firepot going through the pieces by himself. God gave Noah a picture, too, the rainbow. Yeah, I love that, that video, the double rainbow. What does it mean? What does it mean? Well, God tells us what it means. God gave the rainbow as a sign that he wouldn't destroy the world by flood again. But what is that sign that he gave? What is that picture that God gives Noah in his weak faith? Can you imagine what it would have been like ever, ever after the flood when it had a really bad storm? You know? And then the storm ends. And then the rainbow comes. And even though we deserve the storm to destroy us, we don't get it. The rainbow comes to remind us that God has made a promise. But what is that promise pictured with? It's pictured with a bow. In the Hebrew, it just says bow. It doesn't say rainbow. It's actually the Hebrew word for a battle bow. And the picture God gives is, did you see the rainbow today? I saw numerous rainbows today. Beautiful. And which way did they go? That way. I've never seen a rainbow go this way, pointing towards the earth. They always point to God. And it's a picture of a Hebrew battle bow cocked and aimed at God himself. That's the, that's the picture. That's the picture. And at the cross, the promise that was made was kept. We broke our end of the deal when we sin against God. We do it every day. But the battle bow was loosed upon Christ. God himself took the punishment that we deserved. Now, what, what we have in the Lord's Supper is we have this visible, tangible reminder 
that when we come to Christianity, we're not talking about just a philosophy of religion. We're talking about something that really happened. And as real as that bread and that wine feel in your mouth, so much more is the love of God that sent Jesus to a cross. It's real. The sacraments of the gospel promise preached in a picture. And we need them. So I encourage you, you know, when the Bible says go to church, I know people hate church. I know they've got all kinds of reasons why we don't like church. Maybe there's not a church that you really enjoy around you. But let me just tell you, you have weak faith and you need the sacraments and you need the word of God. And you need help. You need help. I want to close with this quote from Martin Luther because I've always loved this. I love this quote. I love that Martin Luther, in some ways, now I know Martin Luther wasn't a perfect guy. There's a lot of crazy stuff that Martin Luther said. But, you know, at some, some level you've got to cut him a break because a lot of the stuff they wrote down when Martin Luther had too much to drink and he had tons of seminary students just sitting at his house writing down everything he ever said. And then they published it. It's called The Table Talk. If you had somebody do that to you... You know, who knows? Um, what, you know, I guess you've got, you know, social networking and, you know, a trail on the internet and whatnot. So maybe you'll be able to identify with Martin Luther a little bit. Um, but, I, but I love this, this quote, uh, and I'm trying to find it. It's in that sanctification thing that we handed out. So hold on. I, I know I've got my version in here. Yeah, here it is. Here's mine. Um, it's in the front under Roman numeral 2. I love this because Martin Luther, you know, in God's providence is the guy that in so many ways rediscovered the goodness of the good news of the gospel. That, that you really could have solid sense of God's love for you. you know, I, I didn't mention this, but Hebrews 6 is a fascinating passage where it talks about how God swore an oath. And, and, and Hebrews says God doesn't need to swear oaths. The only reason you swear an oath is because you're not trustworthy. But God's trustworthy and His word never changes. So if God promises something, He doesn't need to swear an oath. So why does He swear an oath? The book of Hebrews asks in chapter 6. He swears an oath so that His promises and His commitment would be exceedingly clear. Exceedingly clear to the heirs of salvation. Don't you love that? That God doesn't just tell it to you and say, I said it. You should have written it down, and you should remember it. No, he swears an oath. Surely I'm going to do this. Because he wants to go the extra mile that you would be exceedingly clear about his promises. And yet they're so hard to believe. And I love this quote from Martin Luther, because I don't know about you, but sometimes I hang out with Christians, and I think I'm the only one who struggles with this stuff. And so I love this quote from Martin Luther, who in God's providence probably more than anybody um, in, in sort of the last 500 years, helped the Western church recover the gospel. And he says this in a letter, It is exceedingly difficult to get into another habit of thinking in which we clearly separate faith and works of love. For even though we are now in faith, and we understand that God loves us by faith and not by what we've done, the heart, he says, is always ready to boast of itself before God and say, After all, I've preached so long and lived so well and done so much, surely He, God, will take this into account. We even want to haggle with God or sort of, you know, uh, bargain with Him, right? To make him regard our life, what we've done. But it cannot be done, he says. 
With men you may boast, I've done the best I could towards everyone. And if anything is lacking, I will try to make recompense. You can say that before men. I've not treated any of you guys unfairly. You can try that. Okay? But when you come before God, leave all that boasting at home and remember to appeal from justice to grace. But let anyone try this. Notice this here. Let anyone try this and he will see how exceedingly hard and bitter a thing it is for a man or a woman who all their life have been mired in works of righteousness to pull himself out of it and with all his heart to rise up through faith in the one mediator. In other words, he's saying, I know all this, but it's still so hard to live by faith and believe that God loves me not because of what I've done, but because of what he's done. He says, I myself have been preaching and cultivating it. And that, by that means he's living by faith. I've been preaching and cultivating it through reading and writing for almost 20 years. And still I feel the old clinging dirt of wanting to deal with God so that I may contribute something. So that he will have to give me his grace in exchange for my holiness. Still, I cannot get it into my head that I should surrender myself completely to sheer grace. Yet I know that this is what I should and must do. And I love that Martin Luther put that down in writing. Because sometimes you read Martin Luther and you're like, man, I don't, I don't get what he's talking about. He just seems so alive to the joy and the, of discovering the goodness of God in a way that I just don't seem to resonate with. And yet if you ask him, he would say, I'm just... I find it so hard to believe myself. I love his definition of faith. He said, faith is a living, daring hope. Wow. Don't you wish you had more living, daring hope in your life? You cannot get it by just wishing it. God has said, through the word, through the sacraments, through prayer, is how your faith will be built. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. And without faith... In the blood of Christ to cleanse your conscience, you can't serve God. Don't see that as a despondent, despairing message. See it as an invitation. Because let me tell you, if you don't repent and rest, you're going to go crazy. It's a great story about the Apostle Paul. Before he was converted, his name was Saul. And he was doing all kinds of things that he thought God wanted him to do. And finally, God broke into his life in a great shining light. And God spoke to Paul in this setting and said to him, Paul, why do you kick against the goads? That's the way the old King James puts it. And I love that. Do you know what a goad is? Anybody? A goad is a spike that you use to jab an oxen in the rear end so it will go. <laughs> what an image. Especially in a culture where they wear sandals. To be kicking against goads. There's so many of us, even in our best religious duties, that are like kicking against the goads. And we need to repent, and we need to rest, and we need to look at Jesus over and over and over again. Let's pray together.